Adventurers, a podcast of the science, religion, and culture program at Harvard Divinity School. My name is Shireen Hamza. This episode is part of a series about time, including timekeeping and time travel. In today's episode, I sit down with Gilly Vidan, a PhD student in the History of Science department at Harvard, to speak about how time and the futures we imagine help us understand what money was and what it is today. In Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home, there's a really tiny scene um, that I like to to focus on where uh, Captain Kirk and Spock, well, Admiral Kirk at that point, and, and his second-in-command, Spock, arrive in 1986 San Francisco, having traveled back in time from their 23rd century uh, normal setting for Star Trek stories, and they are trying to get on a bus, and Spock turning around and saying, what is exact change? And it's supposed to be played for this comic point of a fish-out-of-water story, this futuristic uh, alien, in, the, in Spock's case, traveler arriving on uh, late 20th century Earth and having a hard time dealing with sort of the very mundane aspects of um, modes of exchange, paying, having a specific form of change. But it also highlights how in the utopian imagined future of Star Trek, there's just no money at all. Why don't they have money in the Star Trek world? the question of scarcity, the question of having to exchange across different sovereignties, different uh, uh, denominations of currency, uh, different political structures doesn't come up because this utopian world has essentially solved this problem um, of a mode of money. And looking at how time travel there is played to um, highlight how certain practices that we take for granted are out of place in the ideal future, is a really productive space to look at what is money and what does it mean. What is money and what does it mean? From medieval coins to bitcoins, stay with us to find out. In 1961, there's a group of archaeologists that uh, have found uh, a purse in one of their uh, digging sites in Trussello in, in uh, Italy, and it contained uh, two very distinct coins. And this kind of numismatic evidence, the study of coinage, um, is used to derive uh, sort of movement of people and movement of goods and uh, an attempt for archaeologists to reconstruct how um, people exchanged. And the fact that this single purse contained uh, these two very different uh, currencies uh, was the puzzle that started their investigation. And, and the two coins were uh, a Carolingian Daenerys made out of silver, um, which is dated to be post uh, late 8th century uh, monetary reform. And where are the Carolingians? And when? Um, so this particular uh, uh, coin in this particular story is located in Lombardia, which is the northern part of Italy, and the uh, Carolingians uh, um, overtook it uh, coming in from the north uh, into that uh, region. From what is now France? From what is now France. And uh, the other coin that uh, was in that uh, same purse, uh, which was the puzzling thing for the 
um, archaeologists who found it was uh, a gold uh, Arab dirham um, that was uh, issued around 800 from the uh, Abbasid Caliphate. Uh, so it was, of course, evidence of kind of exchange and, and movement of these goods, but it was also uh, contradictory to the assumptions that after the Carolingian monetary uh, reform of the late uh, 8th century, uh, the scene was set for this kind of uniform monometallism, where the silver coin was the main uh, currency of the Carolingian Empire, and merchants and um, soldiers carried those coins uh, together. So are you saying that in the medieval world, currency could flow across borders? Uh, it turns out, yes, absolutely. Um, so this idea of solving the problem of exchange through currency, of course, was an issue that plagued uh, more than just uh, modern day travelers who have to deal with foreign exchanges. But what I think is specifically interesting about that is because it is post this uh, monetary reform, it's kind of an indication of a lack of trust in the Carolingian Empire by this purse holder uh, to be holding a gold Arab uh, dirham. Uh, the idea there is that money is a form or a medium that tells us what people believe will have value in the future. It mm. is actually a projection of our trust in a particular institution um, to uphold that value. And in that case, uh, it's a really interesting uh, archaeological fact about this uh, truism that money is not just the metal content that it carries, it is not this physical good, even when the coins themselves were minted in a particular uh, metallic prescription uh, and not paper money and cash or even electronic money um, that we'll get to later. But actually, even at that time, the metallic content itself, the value was still tethered to a faith in governing structure that is the caliphate versus the Carolingian Empire in this case. So if the Carolingian Empire collapsed you know, two years after that person got that coin, the dirham would still have the same value, but that Carolingian silver coin wouldn't. Well, it would not be valueless, but absolutely the value would uh, shift, right? Would so you can, you can actually, when you have uh, a commodity money, is what this is called, that it is actually made of a commodity that is assumed to have inherent value, but it will still shift. You could mm -hmm. um, melt it, you could remint it in a certain fashion, uh, but this kind of uncertainty uh, and this kind of adap uh, adaptation to a new governing mechanism comes at a cost. Mm -hmm. And that is exactly, I think, the interesting cultural history of these artifacts is that they are not inherently valuable just by having a specific metallic content, but they are very much uh, tied to this kind of power structure. So, of course, if you believe that in the future there is going to be uncertainty and upheaval with a particular regime, then you might want to also back your... Um, currency holding with the caliphates. That uh, sounds points. pretty familiar. Yes, absolutely. And uh, this is kind of a counter narrative to uh, classical economic story about convergence where people just found valuable things in the world and they exchanged them in barter and then they found an easy commodity uh, to assign value to, let's say gold, and that became the golden standard. Slowly, slowly people converged around the same currency. And that is kind of the convergence story that historical studies not just this purse, but uh, in general, um, okay. looking at the both material labor and legal labor of uh, making money have kind of dispelled this idea that there was just this bottom-up convergence around commodities, but looked at the world of governance and uh, meaning-making around this current, these currencies. Uh, and that's why, for me, the really interesting question about money is, when is it imagined to have value? 
one is an imagined to happen. Absolutely, uh, yeah. So it's always tied to what people think is going to happen in the future. The story of electronic money actually uh, begins in the late in the late 1960s, where in the U.S. Uh, you get this introduction of electronic banking, uh, the idea that you can go to an ATM machine and get money, that you can interact with your bank account um, in a way that uh, we would now perhaps consider virtual. However, what's interesting about a lot of these monetary instruments, uh, to me, much like that purse, is that, as, as um, we've discussed, even that purse with the Carolingian coin and, and the Arab gold coin, they are uh, virtual in the sense that they derive their value from this external source uh, that backs them up. And yet, the way that people interact with those uh, uh, in, uh, monetary instruments with depositing checks, with taking out paper cash, and whether they're using an automated teller machine or they actually go physically to the bank and discuss it with the teller really mattered. There was actually a lot of concern in the 1970s about the meaning of electronic funds transfer, something that today most of us perhaps take uh, a bit for granted, even though we are wondering about all the hidden fees that are involved with the system. And we want to keep them in separate accounts and we have modes of thinking about uh, that electronic money as real and meaningful in different uh, forms, the different forms that it comes in. Now, the story of uh, specifically digital money, the mode in which uh, there wasn't uh, even a paper uh, 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 mode of keeping money in one's purse, but the purse itself become digital, comes about two decades later in the 1990s. There are all kinds of attempts to facilitate electronic commerce. Um, and the thinking, uh, uh, both by uh, engineers and entrepreneurs and regulatory forces, is that you could do away with the structure of reliance on the state. So if earlier in the story, the virtuality of this material coin came from uh, a recognized sovereign um, and the state that provided backing to uh, money. Like the US dollar. Like the US dollar, and God we trust at the bottom, but actually it is backed by the United States state's government. Um, so if, in, if that has been sort of the model that has been relied on for uh, dollars to have this value, there's an idea that uh, networked computing could actually replace all that, right? So we supplement the in God we trust with uh, writing very complex code that would give these forms of money uh, value of their own. How does the code guarantee the same thing that a government was able to guarantee? I mean, the government is something physical. You can go there. You can see the buildings. It provides things. Um, people trust it because it, they, you know, they look at it and they say, yeah, this could be here in 50 years. It probably will be. I hope it will be. Um, but the uh, you know, code, how do people develop those feelings around that? It's really interesting that you're asking specifically about feelings and the ways in which people come to trust that uh, kind of uh, obtuse object. Uh, let's say most people don't interact with their code directly, though uh, some promoters of uh, cryptocurrencies, things like Bitcoin, which might have been in uh, the news uh, of recent, some promoters of that suggest that because you're invested in this particular mode of currency, you'll have greater familiarity and you'll actually know more about how your money is made and where it comes from than when you just blindly rely on the government, on the, on the US state and the federal reserves for those issues. But it really is interesting that you're highlighting the point about feelings because I do think that a lot of these kind of 
designations of value and assumptions about the future um, of money come from taking on this kind of leap of faith and having a heuristic of what futurity is. Code is of the future, government and paper money is of the past. And that kind of uh, sentiment is what actually allows a lot of people to put their trust literally in these uh, currency systems. In code we trust. Yes. So if, if currency as we know it until now, whether it's um, you know the, the Indian rupee or uh, the United States dollar, is a contract between whoever's holding it and the government who will vouch for its value, who is a contract between the owner of, say, a Bitcoin or any other cryptocurrency between? Who's vouching for its value? So the idea of, I'll, I'll take, for example, Bitcoin, which is the um, kind of first successfully launched and uh, perhaps most widespread and most uh, commonly known uh, of these types of currencies. Um, in the example of Bitcoin, the idea is that the contract is between the individual who has a certain sum of that uh, um, electronic asset, let's say, in their uh, electronic account, and every single other person who's on that network who's participating. Uh, so the notion that uh, Satoshi Nakamoto, the pseudonymous uh, developer of Bitcoin, who uh, published uh, a white paper about in 2008, his idea was to cut kind of the middleman in that uh, uh, transaction, in that idea of currency deriving its uh, value from the state. And the ways in which that uh, allegedly functions uh, is that um, cryptographically based computational power is the friction mechanism that prevents people from cheating the system uh, in a certain way. But the actual agreement on the value or the future value is happening between an individual and everybody else in the network, which is assumed to be on the same level. This is why it's supposed to be distributed. Everyone who's buying into it is vouching for its value together. Everybody who's buying into it is actually generating a certain pressure on the fu potential future value. People who are actually running the code of the network on their machines are the ones who are holding that contractual obligation. Now, I think that we've now had enough experience with Bitcoin as a network to see the ways in which it doesn't quite function so cleanly. And actually, there's an interesting tension between the intended friction that the computational work is introducing into the system and other sources of friction that actually create uh, centralized power and centralized control of it. So suddenly you have this new emerging governing actors that are intervening in that network in a way uh, that acts kind of like the state used to act in designating uh, value and having a lot of control over the network. I see. So the, uh, the intention of the originator of the idea of Bitcoin, Nakamoto, mm -hmm. was that it would be a decentralized authority, but at certain moments it became centralized, just like the state. Yes, and part of the question then remains uh, is, what is the promise of this particular technology to replace uh, modern currency if it's not quite functioning in that decentralized way that one thinks? What kind of a problem is it solving or why people are still putting their trust in it? 2017 was the year where it reached uh, sort of a meteoric uh, increase in, in uh, value. So what is driving a lot of the expectation? And this is where I think thinking about the cultural meaning of futuristic money, so to speak, to speak, rather than the dynamics of 
um, let's say when we were looking at the Carolingian coin, the metallic content, or in this case, the computational work, but looking at what uh, kind of discourses are motivating this kind of invention is really interesting. Um, with cryptocurrency, I think that a lot of this idea about the future suggests that we, uh, that some people are willing to uh, bet that uh, institutions of technological uh, um, uh, infrastructure will have a longer longevity or less uh, um, uh, upheaval and uncertainty about them than perhaps traditional institutions. So again, the question goes back to notions of trust and our sort of imagined futures with relation to that. Um, so by now, I would say we've had enough experience with something like Bitcoin to see that there are these moments of actual crises for the network um, in which actors emerge as re-centralized sources of power to ask what is motivating um, the uh, investment, um, both literal of resources and sort of uh, ideational in this form of a technical solution to uh, replace traditional state currencies in some sense. What is driving that? And that is why going back to ideas about uh, trust and governing bodies to me is really the key question. So if we're thinking not about the metallic content of uh, a Carolingian uh, silver coin or the computational work that goes underneath uh, something like a cryptocurrency, but actually about these imagined futures that are inherently tethered to uh, the coins, that's where we might find answers about how people trust in these technologies, which to me is why the idea that money itself is a projection into the future really functions here when we think about technologies more broadly. Yeah, so uh, people imagine a future with uh, computers, but they maybe even even with even more certainty than they imagine a future with a government. Absolutely, yes. So the time horizon of these technologies by people who are invested in them seems to outlive in their imagination um, a lot of other traditional institutions that we have so far put our trust in. Listeners, thank you for joining us for this episode of Ventricles about money, past, present, and future. If you're interested in learning more, please check out the bibliography for this episode online at the Science, Religion, and Culture Program website src.hds.harvard.edu Tune in to the rest of our series about time, including episodes on the pulse, canoes in space, and more. A special thank you for this music to the Overseas Ensemble, a collaboration between composer Pai Blanca and Sarigama, a group of Sri Lankan musicians who came together while working in Beirut 